coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. That Equifax hack? So last week. This week's vulnerability is Blueborn, a new attack on just about every Bluetooth-connected device. But don't worry, we've got the latest details and the things you need to know to stay patched. Then it's time for some of our favorite and most overlooked shell commands and a breakdown of the ACLU's new lawsuit that aims to keep you safe and secure at the border. Then we've got your fantastic feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 337, broadcast live on September 14th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me is our ever-traveling co-host, but today we catch him at home. That's right, it's our favorite, Mr. Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. I'm here, I'm here. I'm home from my travels and looking a bit um, statuesque at the moment. You sure, you sure are, but you sound great. Uh, yeah, anything yeah. new you want to share today? Um, I have two Dell R710s and another 32-inch monitor. Oh, fun. And I can't do anything with them. <laughs> Why is that? Because tomorrow I fly out to Euro BSG Con. Ooh, and hey, that's a lot it, to look forward it, to, though. It, it, oh, yeah. Because it's in Paris this year. Ooh. So, yep, that's a big deal. That trip. Yep. Excellent. Not packed Not packed yet. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's always something you got to do. I mean, you know, if you do it right at the last minute, you'll make sure you have everything you need except for that one uh, item that you forget, and yeah. uh, you'll get to buy something new in Paris. So that's a nice excuse, like, too. Like shaving cream. Eat, right. Or contact lenses or <laughs> phone chargers something like that so well, yeah i'm gonna try and want i'm gonna try and pack tonight good luck to you and thank you thanks to the magic of us doing this here pre-recording showers show viewers won't miss a beat while you're having a ton of fun in paris but uh i'm sure you'll come exactly. back to the show with lots of good exactly. stories and fun things to talk about from oh, oh yes Econ. so i'm looking forward to that as well uh, yes i guess with that we should just jump right into the first story this one's a uh, Something I'm glad to see. We'll see where it goes. But uh, right off the start, it looks like the ACLU and the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, are suing over warrantless phone and laptop searches at the United States border. Yes. It, it, it's pretty much accepted that when you're entering a country, crossing a border, you have no rights. And the ACLU, long a um, advocate of personal rights has decided to take action on it in conjunction with the EFF. Um, and personally, I think both of these groups are worthy of your of your donations. Um, so we, we've heard many stories recently about people being detained at the border and say, hey, listen, can I look through your phone, please? But it's not probably quite as polite as that, unless it was Canadian customs, but they would be polite. Yeah. And... The thing is, people are being detained and held, and people are being asked to, you know, hand over your phone. We want to look through it. In, in many cases, not only is there private information on there, there's also your employer's information is on there. And this information is then retained. Well, we don't know if it's retained or not, but 
presumably they're looking through it for something. Um, and if you're trying hard enough, you can incriminate someone or form a story that would incriminate someone based on extremely otherwise innocent information. Definitely. Um, and in the U.S., there's the Fifth Amendment, which is the right not to incriminate yourself. And that's very important. Even there have been some very expert legal minds uphold that that is the right of everyone because an innocent person can easily incriminate themselves even if they are innocent. So I know I said innocent twice, but <laughs> you, you, get what, you get what I'm saying. Yes, definitely. E even just giving the police some information, which is totally not related or, you know, you're, you're anyway. Yeah, we have a, we have a wide Sorry. myriad list of laws, uh, especially many di jurisdictions. You may not, uh, you know, you may not no. understand the law that you're violating or have intended to, uh, but still yep. be doing something illegal. Yep. So you can be put in jail for having a lobster. I think we'll come back to that one. For being we? in possession of lobster, you can be put in jail. A lot of people don't know that, but you can be. So, more about that later. The American Civil Liberties Union, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the ACLU of Massachusetts sued the Department of Homeland Security today, today being September 13th, on behalf of 11 travelers whose smartphones and laptops were searched without warrants at the U.S. border. The plaintiffs in the case are 10 U.S. citizens and one lawful permanent resident who hail from seven states and come from a variety of backgrounds. The lawsuit challenges the government's fast-growing practice of searching travelers' electronic devices without a warrant. It seeks to establish that the government must have a warrant based on probable cause to suspect a violation of immigration or custom laws before conducting such ser searches. So basically, they can't do this with when you're in the country. Why can they do it when you're entering the country? It, it's, it's, it seems improbable to me and unfair that a U.S. citizen can't be searched walking down the street in this manner, but if they're coming in from overseas, they can be. It seems... So totally against what the U.S. legal system stands for. Yeah, it's it's quite unsettling in, in that respect, and it, and it does feel like it you know it unnecessarily penalizes um, international travel and kind of makes it especially given a lot of cases where you know even being close to a border 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 control and border security yes. sometimes have additional additional rights and you lose rights. So yep. it doesn't always uh, just affect travelers. You're thinking about that 100-mile rule, yeah. which generally people think applies to the 100 miles around the Mexico border. But no, it doesn't. It applies to any border, which means it's 100 miles south of the Canadian border. It's 100 miles in from the international borders on the coast. So that means here in Philadelphia, you're subject to that. Yeah, that right. means in L.A., you're subject to that. Yikes. So it's everywhere. The plaintiffs include a military veteran, journalists, students, an artist, a NASA engineer, and a business owner. Several are, are, are Muslims or people of color. All were re-entering the country from business or personal travel when border officials, officers, searched their devices. They were not, and this part, this part is the most interesting part. They were not subsequently accused of any wrongdoing. 
Officers also confiscated and kept the devices of several plaintiffs for weeks or months. DHS has held one plaintiff's device since January. This is all unreasonable. It's like, I just want, it would only be fair if a high-ranking government official was subjected to this thing, to this very thing. Right, it's we, the same there, thing. There needs it? to be uh, at least like clear and transparently executed standards for when these mm-hmm. uh, searches and seizures are going to take place, just as a start. Do you have a feeling that um, identity theft might become a thing of the past if you know four or five members of Congress had their identity <laughs> stolen? That may do, be true. I mean, I hope do that doesn't th- happen for their sake. I know, but I know, I agree, <laughs> but. I highly doubt that any high-ranking government official would be subject to anything like these 11 plaintiffs have gone through. I I think you're right about that. There would be a whole lot of payback. So, um, one plaintiff was subjected to violence. Um, Basically, uh, a CPP border uh, officer ordered him to hand over his phone and he had just had his phone searched three days earlier when he was returning from a work trip. So the person declined. Officers then physically restrained him with one choking him and the other one holding his legs and took the phone from his pocket. They kept the phone, which is already unlocked, blah, blah, blah. Um, so people now, quoting from the article, people now store their whole lives, including extremely sensitive personal and business matters on their phones, tablets, and laptops. And it's reasonable for them to carry these with them when they travel. It's high time that the courts require the government to stop treating the border as a place where they can end run the Constitution, said EFF staff attorney Sophia Cope. And then they go on to list um, all the plaintiffs with links to their individual stories. And it's um, interesting. The case Al-Assad versus Duke was filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts. And then they give a link to the actual complaint. And this affects everyone. This affects anyone who ever travels internationally. Yeah, definitely. Well, and even just, you know, regular even u.s citizens just trying to conduct go about their business conduct their professional lives or personal lives um yeah having having your phone or laptop seized taken from you maybe not returned for months on end that could be a serious disruption well you you probably shouldn't structure your life in a way where that would you know be all of your stuff but if you have sensitive documents that you can need to transport or can only have limited copies of all of those are situations where this would be Mm -hmm. you know this isn't even talking about foreign nationals entering who haven't even you know Mm -hmm. an even tougher time who just want to come you know, be in our universities, attend conferences here, help businesses here. All of this just seems like it's it's hurting our own interests as well. I I saw on a local um, uh, computer user group mailing list discussion about a disposable PC or disposable laptop. Okay, I think it was actually a disposable computer, but they were looking at at, at somehow constructing a disposable computer so that they could just basically use it and then get rid of it and not not worry about the cost right. um so you know such as okay i'm going overseas 
they, they, they never seem to search you on the way out because you're not actually under that control. So on your way out, you take what you need and then you just leave it overseas. Or you bring it back and if they want it, you say, go Have ahead, it. take it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's completely wiped anyway, something like that. Right. I know I've, yeah, I've certainly seen people who you know will travel will not bring anything with them and then go try to buy a, a used laptop over there and sell it before they leave. All these kinds of hoops that people are ending up mm. jumping through just to try to protect their basic rights. It, it's almost like a, a new um, market opportunity is coming along. You're where, right. So you we know, should be rent a laptop this. at the airport. Yeah, you're exactly. Uh, now, we, we might want to make sure we have some security uh, procedures in place there so that you can be confident yeah, that they are not uh, bugged. But depending on, you know, who your, who your threat actors are, who you're actually trying to protect yourself against, yeah. that might be reasonable. Someone like Edward Snowden has a very different threat yes. model to what you and I have. I, I, I highly doubt that anyone, is, for example, the NSA, is interested in anything you, you or I are doing. But other people, they have a different, like you said, threat vector, so... Yeah. They have to take different action. Exactly. Well, it's nice to see them being pursued. Uh, I certainly support the ACLU and the EFF. They both do great works as organizations. I um, certainly mm-hmm. recommend supporting them if you're able to. Um, Worthy of donation. Exactly. So we can see more things like that standing up for the uh, you know the rights and principles that uh, we all believe in. Oh, mm-hmm. I forgot to cover one thing. Sure. Um, this morning, I was reading something on Reddit. Uh, basically, they, you know, recent news: Apple coming out uh, with a facial recognition thing. Facial recognition, fingerprints, and iris scans are not protected by the Fifth Amendment. Therefore, devices that are unlocked with biometrics are not secure from a legal point of view. So, basically, with iOS 11, I think. Uh, if you press the power button five times rapidly, it uh, disables a uh, uh, fingerprint. You then have to type the passcode. And the passcode is protected because that is something you know. Despite the fact that there's a man in jail for not decrypting his hard drive. But he's there for contempt of court. Yes. Because he's not following the court's order. He's maintaining that it's a Fifth Amendment thing, but anyway. Yeah. So b- basically, keep keep this in mind. There, there are things that, that Apple and other uh, device manufacturers are doing in order to make it easy for you to uh, revert back to requiring a passcode. But something to keep in mind, and like I said, is a different threat vector. Yeah. Uh, and a reminder... There's a link in the show notes why you should never talk to the police when they ask if you'd like to answer some questions. Yeah, this is a classic, uh, a classic video over uh, published by the Regent University School of Law by Professor mm-hmm. James Dwayne. Uh, and it really is it's an Internet classic. If you haven't seen it before, go check it out. If you haven't seen it in a while, watch it again. I think it's definitely worth that. Um, and it really hits home with why even as someone who thinks of themselves as internet innocent who you know hasn't been attempting to commit any crimes just that the the legal structure that you're in you probably don't have a good understanding of and that is the reason enough to be very careful exactly your answer to that question is always no Exactly. Right. Yep. As he lays out, you'll have, you know, there'll be plenty of time for that later. After you've gotten yourself legal counsel, there will be no end to, yeah. uh, to questions. Now, 
Now, now some people may think, may misinterpret what we're saying and say, you're, you're sounding like you're very anti-police. No, this is not an anti-police right. thing. Right. This is something that Supreme Court justices have stated that no lawyer worth their salt would advise a client to say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, talk to the police. <laughs> no lawyer would ever advise that. And you, you just don't. You do not disclose any information to the police. Yes. Let your lawyer do that. Yeah, exactly. You can you can still cooperate with the law, you know, in a lawful way, mm-hmm. without volunteering extra information to the mm-hmm. police. Go through standard extra. channels. Have a good legal yes. counsel for yourself. It'll be yes. better for the system. It'll be better for you. Exercising your Fifth Amendment right is not against the law. Many people have gone to jail by not exercising that right, and they were innocent. So exactly. Stay safe out there, audience. Yes. We, we, we anyway. would be sad to hear if anything happened to you. So watch the video and and after this whole thing you're probably concerned about your data integrity and your data storage and you want to know that like you you're going to have your data you have it somewhere reliable so that when you do need to go travel and you need to do a restore on the fresh laptop you bought just bought from dan's rental laptop service uh, you want to be confident that you can get that securely and that that data is stored safely and securely if that's your goal there's really only one place for you that is our friends over at ix systems one of the premier hardware retailers in the industry with amazing partnerships, people like Intel and their incredible Intel processors. IX Systems is the expert in storage, in reliability, in custom solutions to whatever problem your business or startup or personal project is facing. So go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There, you will find the definitive guide for buying hardware for open source software. Little secret, I think it'll work just fine with proprietary software. I don't know why you'd run that, but if you need to, hey, iX Systems can help you out there too. iX Systems is different than probably any other hardware vendor you've worked for if you haven't worked with them before. Part of that is their community. You know, they're part of the community. They've been around for a long time through dot-com bubbles and bursts. Uh, they get the business. They get what's important. If you go to take a look at their their homepage, you'll see the kind of people that they work with, right? These are big names. People like Hitachi, Sony, Disney. Hey, some of those latest movies you watched? Stored on giant IX systems systems. That's what makes them so trustworthy is because they, from large to small, to any size in between, they've done it. They have customers. They've helped do it. That's what makes them truly expert. And they've got a great staff of talented sales engineers standing by the phone, ready to take your call, ready to talk to you and connect and really understand the problem that you're trying to solve. They don't want to just sell you something off the off the rack, right off the shelf that's been pre-configured, fits, you know, one size fits all. No, that's not what they're interested. In. I mean, sure, you can definitely do that if you if they have the thing right for you, like maybe you just want to pick up a brand new super shiny free NAS mini and you know what? You should. You really just should cuz is there anything better than that? I don't I don't think so, especially if you just need some new backup for your home office, your own office helping out a friend, or you just want to put one in your house, one in someone else's house, do some replication between them. All of those are possibilities. You can pick them up on Amazon Prime if you're a Prime Now customer, get them shipped right to you, or order them direct from IX. But let's say you have something a little harder, right? Like you're, you're trying to build a whole new data center. You haven't done this before. Maybe you're not an expert in hardware, you're not an expert in, in SaaS or big drive arrays or making sure that you have as much network throughput as you think you're going to need. IX knows how to do that. They will help you. They will make sure that the servers you buy from them are configured, ready to go, get shipped to the correct data center, get racked up, plugged in, and just work. Because they've done burn-in testing, they've got white glove service, they take this seriously. 
If you don't believe me, just head on over to their blog. There, you'll see some of the cool stuff that IX is getting up to. Uh, hey, they've just they just got back from VBSDCon. They've got their 2017 conference reflection there. And they've got some neat articles, too, about the private cloud and how TrueNAS, their uh, enterprise version of FreeNAS, how that can help maybe a business near you. Plus, anytime you see one of their one of their articles that's talking about some of their new systems, like this one, talking about the new Intel Xeon scalable processes, that's with hashtag server envy. Those are always worth checking out because that'll give you an inside view into the incredible systems IX has been crafting. So to get started, to get yourself a brand new rig, go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so this next article... It's a little different. Not something we normally do, uh, or, or you know, a little bit different than our normal fare, but I think it's interesting. Uh, I'll be curious to see what stood out to you about it. So uh, without further ado, here's 30 interesting commands for the Linux shell. Now, not all of these are Linux-specific. We should probably say that like right out the right off mm-hmm. the bat. Some are, some aren't. That's something to be aware of. And, and not all of them are shell commands, like strictly built right. into the shell. Some of them are third-party, but that's that's not the point. I went through these and listed the ones that either I wasn't aware of or I found particularly useful or obscure enough that I thought other people should know about it. So, skipping down to number five, get full path of the file. I have always wanted to do this. Sometimes you're in a directory and and you've got the file name and you have to copy and paste from the, from the directory and then you have to copy and paste from the file. Being able to do read link minus F file name gets to the full path of that file i tried it it works i like that very nice yeah uh, one one command people that don't maybe people don't know about that similar is a uh, dir name which you can take a file and then it'll just yep. give you the directory name for it and you can also do base name and base name which, yeah which, which does the file name part of the whole path name yeah definitely helpful when you don't want to have to do uh you know do that string yep. manipulation yourself and there's a lot of other extras you can do, like uh, if you want to take off a .txt extension or something like that. I think that'll do that'll do that as well. There's lots of options on the base name or on the dir name. Uh, I use that a lot in shell scripts. Yeah, exactly. Well, not maybe a lot, but I've used it more than twice. Um, now the next thing, it's often interesting to see the list of the contents of a tarball. Um, or just extract only one file. Extracting only one file is pretty cool. Usually, I just dump the whole tarball out. Right, but sometimes um, that's a you know sometimes you don't need that, or you have limited space on the drive you're trying to extract to, uh, or you've mm-hmm. made changes and you really just want to grab that one file that you messed up from the tarball. Yep. Now, something that um, if people aren't aware of what what we're referring to when we say a tarball, think zip file but created on Unix. And the word tar actually comes from a very old tool. Um, uh, Tar is used to manipulate tape archives. That's what tar stands for, tape archives. And it it all extends back to the days when there was a lot more tape around. And I use tar just for creating a a tar ball, that's what we call it, and also for writing stuff to tape when I'm initially testing a tape setup yes i still use tape. <laughs> look at that uh that's great but it gives now, you first-hand experience it does you're you're using very old tools there uh, next command 
we've used Traceroute, which basically lists all the different hops that a packet takes from your computer to the destination. Well, there's another uh, tool called MTR, and MTR is oh, I can't I know it's a third-party app, and I've used it before, and it is a very nice um, protocol. I don't know if I have it on the server here or not. Oh yeah, that's um, a good question. But but I've used it more than once, and I very do much like the way it works. Yeah, I do have it. It's a lot faster than a trace route too because it does everything in parallel. Well, yeah, parallel and has serial a, and yeah. has a nice you know has a nice like uh, curses style display that'll do live yes. updates for you. Yes. Um, it also has a dash dash report option. So if you do want to take that nice display and have it something you can save, let's let's say in a ticketing system or otherwise, you can do that too. So. If you want all those features yeah. and not using the original trace route, that works too. And now that I've run the, and now that I've run the command, I see that MTR means my trace route. There we go. I was about to say that. Yeah. Definitely handy. Definitely nicer than the you know the stock one, and can help give you some insight into just what's failing when you can't talk to the uh, server. Oh, yeah. I think you should be it, able to. It's very nice. I wish I used it more than I do. <laughs> yeah. Now. Find. I use find a lot. Uh, I'm looking for a particular file under a tarball directory, for example. Uh, and you, there's all these options on find, like find by a file size. You're looking for something of an exact size. You can do that. Um, you're, you're looking for files that match a particular pattern and you want to delete them. You just append minus delete to, to the command. Um, you want to see files listed line by line. You just do echo... Uh, curly brace, curly brace, and there's your list of files. Um, you want want them all in the same line. Uh, sorry, you, you append the line with slash semicolon, and it's all on all on different lines. If it's slash plus sign, they're all listed on, on one line. Um, I use find for all kinds of things, uh, just for listing the files in a directory, for example, instead of using ls. Uh, oh, find yeah, can definitely. also be Find can also be piped into uh, Xargs if you're getting very complex and doing lots of different things. Yeah, it's important to note too that like you know using uh, using ls output in shell scripts is generally frowned upon. There's a lot of gotchas that you can have there. Whereas find uh, find works a lot better, especially if you are going to be piping it somewhere else. Uh, there's the the print zero option, which will help if you have some strangely formatted files with new mm -hmm. lines or other weird characters mm -hmm. in it. Xargs has a similar argument to accept that kind of input. Uh, so there's just a lot of options, including they have a like the delete option. That's a flag not a lot of people know about for find. You'd have to be a little oh, careful yeah. because the ordering of the arguments matters. So if you put it before your selectors, you will just delete all the files that you find. But it's still mm -hmm. super helpful and can be faster than trying to, you know, if you just do a naive find and exec with RM, uh, a lot of times that's going to spin up a whole bunch of RM invocations, which won't be super fast on a directory with a ton of small files. Definitely a super helpful command. It's pretty cool. Uh, now, the next utility is a line numbering filter. Now, you'd think it would be called LN, but LN is already taken, so they called it NL. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't looked in the history to see um, why it was called NL. Maybe it's NL because you want to number the lines. Yeah, I think so. But basically, you can do LS pipe... NL, and each line of the output of LS has a unique line number on it, increasing. 
and it's pretty cool. And there's all kinds of options on it. You can say start start at this number, uh, have this wide of a field, um, do increment by this value. The default value is one, but I can see this being useful for a lot of different things, far beyond what I can imagine right now. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, any time where you don't you don't want to use a, a fancy editor, maybe you don't want to have one available, but you just need to do a quick reference, or you're trying to figure out from a stack trace what a, where a problem lies in a file. Boom, there they are. Yep. Now, the next thing. Sometimes you're going to run a command. You want to know how long it took. There is the time command, and you can do time minus v ls, for example. Well, actually, it's not minus V on Bash or on this one, but basically it gives you the real time, the user time, and the system time that it used to actually execute that command. And you can see that some things are very, very fast. But say you're doing, um, you're deleting a whole bunch of files, you want to say, how long does that take? Well, this will tell you. Especially if you're going to walk away and you're coming back later sort of to figure out, well, did that take half an hour or three hours because you've been gone all day? Yes. This gives you an idea. Mm. Uh, it should note, note too, that uh, Bash has a built-in for time. Um, I think that's probably why here they're using user bin time because there's also, mm-hmm. at least on Linux, there's a GNU core utils utility that does similar things. I think the core utils one has a few more features than the, the simple Bash built-in. Um, but either way, it's useful. You're right. Uh, the built-in time gives you a different output from the user bin time. You're exactly right. Yeah, I forget uh, all of the nuances between them. I know. I have to look into that. I got caught by this more than once. Is that differentiating right? Differentiating between the built-in command and the and the binary. I can't remember what the lo- what what it was this last time that happened, but it did. Why is this not working? <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, this is a pretty good list. I got to say, there's some ones that'll probably be remedial for a lot of people, but there was a couple mm-hmm. on that uh, you know I had hadn't heard of or I hadn't used for a long time, hadn't thought of. So it's kind of mm-hmm. a nice nice refresher. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I've got maybe four or five. Uh, I think I've got seven or eight more to go, so we'll just go through them very quickly. So the next one is randomized lines in a file. You got a line of file. You've got a. Uh, a file with a whole bunch of, say, quotes in it, you want to pick one at random, you cat, you actually, you could, you could um, shorten that. Sort file, sort minus R file name, pipe it to head minus one, it'll give you a random line from that file. Sort minus capital R. You don't have to do the cat. Um, no, in fact, you probably Keep, shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't super matter, but it's a useless use of cat, so. Yeah. Now, there's something called shuffle as well. And I'm not seeing, I think that's a separate command. I don't think it's built in. Now, they talk about keeping a program running after leaving an SSH session, and they're doing a no-hop via something. So I guess you could do a lot, but, um, hmm. They also mentioned screen or tmux. I would probably use tmux for this rather than a no hop but the number of times i started a command and wished i'd done it under tmux all of the time yeah exactly and you know yeah no hub is fine uh the the tips they have there you know disown and etc uh those all work just fine but but tmux has a lot of the same advantages and you can still interact with the program in an easier way um still you know 
job control will still work for it if you're using that all, all of that uh so if you can i i generally prefer it as well now uh just trying something here now um the other thing here they're talking about is combine lines from two sorted files so this is interesting i don't have a use for it but i found found it interesting um if you do com c-o-m-m file one comma file two it'll print out three columns it'll print the lines unique to file one the lines unique to file two and then it'll print out the lines that are in both so it's sort of like a diff but not quite and with options minus one minus two or minus three you can pick any one of those three columns you want so i can see how this can be useful it's sort of like a join or or a unique but yeah yeah, it almost gives wanna, you, it gives you sort of um yeah like um like some almost like a set operation on, yes. on files. Yes. Mm-hmm. One thing to note is if you are doing it, uh, you'll probably want to sort your files. Um, yes. Depending on on if they if they come from different sources or are randomly ordered for this to be useful, but otherwise, yeah, it's a great command. Yeah, they, they do mention that in the title. I missed that. Combine lines oh, from two yeah. sorted files. I missed that. They're myself. way ahead of us. So here's something that's dear to my heart. Flush the swap partition. So basically, something's gotten swapped out. If you want to get it swapped in, you do sudo swap off minus a, wait for it to finish, and then do sudo swap on minus a. And basically, it just deactivates the swap partitions and then reactivates them, and that flushes everything out. Yeah, it. Uh, you should be careful, though, if you are on a memory-constrained system. Uh, yes. If you don't have enough free memory when you're trying to do this, uh, you may run into some problems. But this is definitely a good one to be aware of, especially for um, you know people who haven't done a lot with swap, or I've seen it a lot in monitoring, like, long-running systems where things will get put into swap. A monitor mm-hmm. will trickle saying, like, mm-hmm. hey, you have over mm-hmm. X percent. And you're like, well, not really. Yep. It's just that we haven't used those files anymore. It hasn't been brought back into the main memory. So if you just want yep. to, if you have a bad monitor like that, and you can clear it, clear it very easily. Yep. There's something happened. It was high resource contention, and something get oh, I don't need this anymore. Put it out there, and then that task is done. Let's bring it back in. Uh, The next command: create an empty file of given size. So f allocate minus l. Yes, minus l or minus one. I think it's It's minus l. l. Yeah. 1G test image. So there you've just created a one gig file, just like that. Yeah, super helpful. Um, and, and it depends on, it depends. I think it, I think it needs support. Some file systems don't support this uh, or don't support it in the ways that you think. I've run into that a couple of times, but uh, for any like, for any common file, file system, it should work very nicely. You can achieve similar with things like the truncate command or uh, even a, even a DD, but F allocate is there. It's fast. It's easy. And it's great Like if you're talking about like where, oh, yeah, here, I'm trying to make a raw disk image is what it looks like they're doing there. Uh, super helpful. I've also used it to test uh, disk usage monitors in the same vein. Hey, here, create a file that looks real huh. big that's going to sit on there. Does it trigger? Yep. Okay, great. Oh, that's a good idea. Never thought of that. Yeah. I would have created a random file. I would have just uh, copied something from Dev Random. Yeah, huh. that works too. That yours is a much better idea. Thank you. Hmm. Okay, that's it on that topic. The one I, I think I, you had a great highlight there. The only yep. one I would add was uh, they covered up at the top here is uh, 
catting a file in reverse. And I love that the name of that is just tack. So that's great. I've had that asked in <laughs> interviews before. I don't know how, it's probably less common these days, but if you have a really big file and you just want to see see stuff at the end of it, um, but maybe you know maybe you just want to read it in backwards order, there you go. Tack, it exists. It's probably in your user land already. Have at it. Hmm. Uh, wait, man, cat. No, there is no man. Is there a reverse in here? Reverse. Reverse. No, there is no reverse. So there you go. And I don't have tack on here. Well, you, my friend, are missing out. Okay. I'm missing out. Uh, anything else you wanted to highlight there before we move on? No, no. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Well, uh, dear audience, go check this list out. Maybe run some of the commands that you haven't tried. I'll, there's a spell checker for LaTeX in there that I was going to give a shot. Hadn't heard of that before. And several other ones you might find interesting. Or if you think this list missed some of your favorite commands, hey, let us know about that too. We'd love to talk about it. Before we move on to our final story in the main segment, we need to talk about our next sponsor, and that is DigitalOcean. If you have been excited about all these commands we're running, you're probably looking for a place to play with them. Maybe you're stuck on a Windows box at home, or you you can't get to a decent Linux system right now. No problem. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit, and that will set you on your way in under 55 seconds to a brand new VPS running in the cloud. Whatever Linux distribution you need, Ubuntu, Container Linux, Fedora, hey, FreeBSD, whatever system is going to solve your problem, DigitalOcean almost certainly has it. And in less than a minute, you'll have it too. DigitalOcean is a great place for building your next business, startup or open source project. They're a great member of the community. They take community contributions, hire real editors to turn those into some of the best documentation on the internet. They're also a generous sponsor. There's numerous open source projects that they provide free hosting to or other services. So you can tell that they're, you know, while they're a very successful business and that's great, they're also a member of the community. And so you can feel good putting your trust trust behind them. Plus, They have got the simplest, most intuitive API I have just about ever seen. You know, you can tell that they really, they dog food it, right? Their their, their services use it. Their UI runs on it. And your tools will too. We use it here at the show. There's a ton of great apps and open source projects. Things like Vagrant or... um, you know, Terraform, they all have support for DigitalOcean. And any new tools that come out, DigitalOcean is usually one of the first that does. So you don't have to worry about using some sort of weird niche cloud provider that doesn't get good support for the tools you're already using in your workflow. In most cases, I think DigitalOcean drop, DigitalOcean Droplet should just be a, a drop-in, especially with some of the features they've been rolling out lately. Things like high CPU droplets, load balancers, monitoring. They've got attachable block storage. And wait till you find out that that's all SSD. Oh yeah, DigitalOcean was one of the first cloud, you know, cloud businesses that really got that SSDs were transformative and that they could transform the way that you thought about running things in the cloud, the performance that you get. Combine that with the 40 gigabit E to that real KVM hypervisor and you have performance that you just you won't expect, especially when prices start at just $5 a month. Spin up a $5 rig, SSH up there. DigitalOcean makes it super easy to add SSH keys to secure it properly, all of that. They even have a full, no flash, HTML5 VNC console, which is so great for when you really need to troubleshoot something. Maybe you're trying to do something funky with your bootloader, try out a new distribution. DigitalOcean makes that super simple. I mean, really, really couldn't be simpler. 
So try it out. There's like a ton of different apps. Try it out with, with your favorite open source tool that you use to provision cloud services. And go see if you can get on the wait list for some of their exciting new features because they always have more. And that's, that's the thing is you can tell that they're, they're, they're moving at a fast pace. They care about this. If you follow them on social media, you'll see their immaculate data centers. They've got them all over the world. And there's like almost always new ones coming soon. You can even have private networking. If you're in the same data center, boom, you don't pay for that usage. That's what makes it so simple. So head over to their pricing page. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That'll get you started with a $10 credit. They also have hourly pricing. And for me, that's kind of transformational. There's a ton of processes that I just I don't want to run on my box. Or I just want to, you know, maybe I want to trigger something, go do a computation, build a new kernel. Oh, hey, this this software came out. I'd like to build some releases or compile DKMS modules. DigitalOcean makes it so easy. And I mean, for like less than pennies even, right? Like, look at that. That's that's seven tenths, seven tenths of a cent per hour on that $5 a month rig. How can you beat that? That's just a computer for like for nothing that you can use that's outside your network that's got incredible performance. So you really have no excuse. Go try DigitalOcean. I'm sure you'll want to move most of your infrastructure to it. That's pretty much what's happened to me. And don't forget to use our promo code, SNAPOcean. That lets DigitalOcean know you and we appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so last week, we were talking about Equifax. It's I think everyone. Yeah. I think everyone was, but yeah. that really is so last week now. And everyone, it's been Equifax, Equifax, and the news every day. And I'm talking mainstream news. And rarely do big security issues no. get mentioned on Usually the mainstream it's, uh, news. You know, programs yeah. like this one. So, this is a Facebook post by Paul Vixie. If you don't know who Paul Vixie is, you really should go and, and look it up. He's been involved with computers since before most of you were born. Uh, I think I met Paul Vixie for the first time uh, this past weekend at VBSDCon. He and I were sitting next to each other at the, uh, I think it was the ZFS BOF. It might have been a different BOF, but it was one of the BOFs. And... Um, so Paul says, Equifax is so last week. Everyone go home and take a shower and change your underwear because this week's hair on fire emergency is now upon us. And we're going to need you fresh at your desk for, well, for all eternity, I guess. So then he goes on to quote, this attack does not require the targeted device to be paired to the attacker's device or even to be set on discoverable mode. Armis Labs has identified eight, eight, I said, eight zero-day vulnerabilities so far, which indicate the existence and potential of the attack vector. They believe many more vulnerabilities await discovery in the various platforms using Bluetooth. These vulnerabilities are fully functional and can be successfully exploited as demonstrated in our research. Anybody here run Bluetooth? I know I do. I do as well. So that's a little concerning. Yeah. So, you know, this is phones, tablets, PCs, um, cars. What else? Speakers. Yeah, all more, a ton of things are Bluetooth enabled. Headsets. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd be able to exploit much in a headset, but right. it's there. So before we go any further, keep in mind that... M- much of this has been patched already. This, the, this uh, 
this stuff was has been known since I think April of this year. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, they they started contacting people in April of this April, May, June, July, August, September. So here we are, five months later. So hopefully, a lot of things have been patched, and they do list some of the things Excellent. which have been patched. Yeah. So it's not as dire as it sounds, but it is a big deal. Yeah, and a good a good reminder that like, make sure you go check the patch levels for your systems and be mm-hmm. aware of uh, how those processes mm-hmm. work. Watch our what is our catchphrase, audience? <laughs> patch patch your, shit. your shit. Yes. Now, uh, I'm going to read through this first paragraph, and it, uh, of course, it's from the people who discovered their vulnerabilities, so they're hyping it up as much as they want. So keep in mind that it that it's not as dire as it sounds, but it is a big deal. Armis Labs revealed a new attack vector endangering major mobile, desktop, and IoT operating systems, including Android, iOS, Windows, and Linux, and the devices using them. The new vector is dubbed Blueborn. As it spread, as it spread, at it, it they really get this bad. <laughs> Sentences are hard. It's all right. I know. It's either as it spreads or as it's as it is spread through the air, airborne, and attacks devices via Bluetooth. Armis has also disclosed eight related zero-day vulnerabilities, four of which are classified as critical. Blueborn allows attackers to take control of devices, access corporate data and networks, penetrate secure air-gap networks, and spread malware to adjacent devices. So. By air gap, they mean basically if you've got a cell phone in, in your pocket and in their video, they give the example of someone doing deliveries and their phone is infected and they walk through through into your lobby and the Bluetooth spreads from one device to the other. If you're patched, I think you're okay. But still a little terrifying, at least the image of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, and I quote, the attack does not require the targeted targeted device to be paired to the attacker's device or even to be set on discoverable mode. Now, how can this happen? It happens because Bluetooth is freaking complex. And even if you just follow the exact proper things, you can still do it wrong. Um, So, it was a coordinated disclosure. They contacted Google on April 19th uh, and then the coordinated disclosure began on September 12th, which was two days ago. Now, um, what they're talking about here is they got in touch with Google, Microsoft. Uh, uh, they contacted Google and Microsoft on April 19th. They didn't get in touch with, uh, with Apple until just over a month ago. But Apple had no vulnerability in its current versions. That's the important thing. That is important. That's interesting. That's interesting. Samsung was contacted on three separate occasions in April, May, and June, and no response was received back. Boo, Samsung. Yeah. Boo. These are important things to get right, especially when you are a major handset retailer. Mm-hmm. Now, here they say, say they contacted Linux on February 15th and 17th. How do you contact Linux? Well, they contacted the Linux kernel security team and the list Linux distribution security contact lists and conversations followed from there. So, and then they they were targeting updates for on about September 12th, which was a coordinated disclosure. So, 
they go through the list of devices that are impacted. Impacted. I hate that use of the word affected. So it affects the Google Pixel, the Samsung Galaxy, the Galaxy Tab, the LG Watch Sport, and the Pumpkin Car audio system. Google has issued a security patch update. Um, iOS. So all iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch devices with iOS 9.35, which is a bit ago. I don't know what what are we on now? 10? Uh, yeah, we're on uh, iOS 10 now. So yeah. they've been patched for a while. And Apple TV was also also um, at risk, but it is patched. And it has been patched for a while. The vulnerability was already mitigated by Apple in iOS 10. So new, no new patch is necessary. And they said, get on the latest uh, iOS or tvOS. And they say, if you are concerned that your device may not be patched, we recommend disabling Bluetooth and minimizing its use until you confirm a patch is issued and installed on your device. Because theoretically, and this is a hypothetical, you could be driving down the road with your phone Bluetooth attached to your car, and a car driving along beside you could infect it. Right? Isn't no. that yeah? Isn't that terrible? Yeah. Wow. So don't panic. Just be aware. Yeah, exactly. And do the, the do the things the, you can to stay safe, and mm. uh, then move on with your life. There's a whole list of uh, of uh, CVEs in, in here, and I'm not going to read them out. But basically, the only way to be secure here is either to turn your Bluetooth off which isn't reasonable for most people, or make sure that your devices are patched. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Yeah. This is, this is potentially scary, but we'll see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to follow, um, you know, try to see just how widespread it is, what sort of reports about actual breaches that can be linked back to this uh, may or may not be. Uh, it is a little bit worrying for, you know, it does seem like a, an easy way that you could try to target someone, especially if they aren't, uh, you know, software savvy. Uh, definitely concerned. Such a, you know, watch out for your Bluetooth uh, enabled toothbrush. Yes, exactly. Hey, hey, stay away from my toothbrush, Dan. That's very private and sensitive go. material. Yes, it is. All right. Well, thank you for that. That's... Uh, Quite fascinating, quite distressing, uh, and I'm certain we'll have more to talk about it on upcoming TechSnap programs. Anything else you want to add before we move on? Uh, no, just patch your ship. Well said. Uh, okay, so if you're concerned about this, you probably want to make sure that you are running a device that's either you know not vulnerable or a device that can get the updates it needs to stay secure. You really, What you really don't want is a wireless carrier that gets in your way. So, my friends, head on over to Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. There you will discover a smarter way to do mobile. We say smarter, but but what do we mean by that? Well, we mean mobile that makes sense. We mean pay for what you use. All these other big carriers, right? They're they've got this business model where they just they want to lock you in. They want to make sure that you have to they're getting the best deal off you that they can. And and to do that, you you sign a 2-year contract. You've got fees if you try to leave early because you aren't satisfied. And they make you try to estimate upfront how much you want to use. A lot of times those come with bundling of unlimited things, unlimited minutes and messages and things they know that it's not that expensive for them, but you aren't really going to use that much of. And then they really get you on the data, right? That's where we all feel the pain. You just want to use some data. You want your family to be able to use data. But how, how much do you need? Do you know how to estimate for two full years? I certainly don't. 
enter Ting. And Ting does this in a simpler way. It's the way, if we were smart, that the wireless mobile industry should have been from the beginning. It starts with $6 a month. That is your per line rate at Ting, right? So $6 a month, that's it. Super easy. You have two phones, that's $12 a month. Scales linearly, so super simple. Then you just pay for what you use. If you go to their rates page, they have a super simple form that makes it easy for you to understand. All right, so uh, this this month, yeah, maybe I called a couple people just to check in, see how they're doing. That's $3. Text messages, I didn't send any of those. I've switched all my friends over to better things, thankfully. So that's $0. You don't use it, you don't pay for it. That's the amazing thing with Ting. So even if you have a couple extra lines, you want to have them for security, you want to have just an extra phone you keep in the car in case you forget yours at home, that's just $6 a month. It's pretty easy to justify. That's a, you know, one meal out. It's a sandwich at the store. It's a it's a drink. Or you can have this backup line. I like using it as a backdoor to my house. So if my main ISP goes down, I can get in through the Ting network. Super handy. That gets you down to the data line. One of the nice things I like about Ting, not only is there no early termination fees, but you get all the features you think that you, you know, that you've come to expect. Things like three-way calling, voicemail, and tethering. There's no magic other tethering bucket. You don't have to worry about that. On Ting, data is just data. You don't have to call your mobile provider and ask them very nicely to enable tethering. And they have some, you know, worked with your manufacturer to lock down tethering and you run a special modified OS version that won't let you tether unless you've enabled it on your account. But no, none of that. That's crazy. On Ting, you just bring your phone. You can bring your own device if you already have one or head on over to their store and pick one up there. And then you just hit the tether button and then it works. That's what we mean when it's mobile that makes sense. So just estimate how much data you want. They've got a handy tool where it can log into your account, go look at your past bills and tell you how much money you'd save. Or, you know, do that yourself. Come over here to the rates page, enter it in, and you'll see, even even if you're just using, you know, I'm using a whole gig of data, which is kind of a lot if you're on Wi-Fi, it's still only $25 a month. Your, your average monthly bill, it's less than that. Plus, when you go to techsnap.ting.com, you're going to get a $25 service credit. So chances are it's going to pay for more than your first month's bill. Talk about a great way to get started with a new cell phone provider. Oh, man. That's one of the things I just love about Ting. That and they've got the latest and greatest things. I mentioned the shop, but just go go step over there. Uh, while you're there, you'll, you'll realize that uh, they've also got an incredible web dashboard. Really the best dashboard in the business, pretty much. And a great app. So if you already have a phone, you're trying to add some new phone, deactivate, switch switch settings, you can do that all from the app. Or you can give them a call and talk to their friendly customer service. Unlike other customers or other providers, they are not focused on you know trying to become the next big media conglomerate or uh, adding super cookies to you. No, they're focused on providing you great service and great customer support with real humans on the phone. They've also got CDMA and GSM. So when you pick up a SIM card, you get to choose there. You can use either. They have an IMA checker, so you can check to make sure that the phone you have will work with either one of those services. Boom. Sim- super simple. And they've got all the latest and greatest phones, right? Samsung Galaxy S8, Apple iPhone. I'm sure they'll have the new ones just as soon as those are available. What's not to love? TechSnap.ting.com. And thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to today's feedback segment, the time where we look through our various social media accounts and find the letters from you that stand out the most and share them right here on the show. So first up, we've got a little message on Twitter from Dave QB, writing to Mr. at TechSnap underscore Dan, referring to episode 328. The show might be interested in iRedMail for an all-in-one mail solution. It also has FreeBSD 
jail documentation. Awesome. Hey, that sounds great, Dave. I have not used it, but uh, let's check it out. So over at iredmail.org, free open source mail server solution. The right way to build your mail server with open source software since 2007. Plus, it looks like it works on RHEL, CentOS, Debian, Ubuntu, FreeBSD, and OpenBSD. So that's a, that's a great selection of platforms. Have you, uh, have you used iredmail yourself over there? I have not. I do not know it at all. This is the first I've heard of it. Yeah. I don't think we've covered this before in the show, have we? It's not one of the ones we've already mentioned. No, I don't think so. It doesn't look familiar. It doesn't look familiar. They they say it, it runs on on uh, FreeBSD. I'm sure it does. I just don't see a package for it on um, on um, Freshports. Oh, yeah. No mention no, of iRedMail, but doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. Oh, interesting. They just seem to provide a uh, tarball. I wonder if they did do some, <clears throat> some fancy checking to see, um, or maybe it uses the Linux compatibility in FreeBSD. I don't know. It'll be interesting to check that out. Uh, I'll have to give it a try. It looks like they got it lots use, of nice stuff, though. It uses a database. Oh, does it? Hmm. Yeah. Secure by default, end users are forced to use mail services through secure connections, and emails are encrypted in transit using TLS when possible. That's always good. They've got a webmail. Oh, they've also got calendar contacts and active sync set up. Um, mm. Interesting. Plus, unlimited accounts. That's handy, too. <laughs> Supports mainstream Linux and BSD. <laughs> what are they trying to say? Yeah, I know, right? Okay, yeah, you're right. Different backends, uh, MySQL, MariaDB, Postgres, and OpenLDAP. Interesting. And they've got spam like, stuff in, integrated, which is awesome. I do like the idea of storing stuff in databases. Uh, Mark Felder was showing me earlier this week what he uses for messaging. He uses something from Matrix. Um, and basically, it, it's all bridges and portals. And it... it Say you connect and you've got your backtrace, you can scroll backwards because it's all looking in the database. So everything is scrollable infinitely. So, yeah, any, any application of a database and stuff like this, I really like. Yeah, exactly. Especially when it's composed of, uh, you know, reusable pieces of software, maybe that you're already even familiar with. So it's easy to understand, easier to find documentation for. And if you need to, you know, you can go uh, change or repiece some of the things and build your own system. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, that's great. Thank you, uh, Mr. Dave QB. Much appreciated for the feedback. If anyone else uh, has thoughts on iRedMail or similar solutions, please do let us know. Okay. So we just got one other piece of feedback today, a little short feedback segment, but that's just fine. Again, on Twitter, uh, at Platymu, writing to both of us. We talk a lot about SSL in the context of encrypting traffic, but it's more than that. Authentication and know your peer. You know what? I think that's a really good point. You you talk about right here. Yeah, we definitely agree on that. Um, and we don't. We haven't always had time to cover it as in depth as we'd like. So that's certainly something that has been missed, uh, especially since we ended up talking. You know, we talk a lot about encryption, but uh, the authentication part of that is is equally, if sometimes not more so, important when you you know you really want to trust. Yeah, it's great if my traffic's encrypted, but if it's not encrypted to the right party, hey, that doesn't help you so much. Yeah, what what they're getting at is um, uh, the example I can think of. <clears throat> pardon, the example I can think of is a mailing, uh, not mailing list, a VPN server. So you've got a VPN server, and 
it only allows connections if the client presents a certificate signed by a specified certificate authority. And a lot of people create a private certificate authority for, for such use cases. I know I do. Um, and, you know, you can also put a passphrase on your certificate so that if you're connecting in from your laptop, as soon as it connects in and it gets asked to provide the certificate, you type in the passphrase and it connects. And then it says, oh, that's a certificate I have on my list. Yes, certainly. You can you connect. You are allowed. Yes. So it's a combination of something you have, uh, which is the certificate, which is issued by known authority. And so it's digitally signed and is very difficult to forge. But just to stop just but in order to stop just old anyone from grabbing that cert and using it, the certificate is encrypted and you decrypt it with a passphrase. That's the something you know. And between the two, the something you have and your something you know, you can get connected to the VPN. And this can apply to a lot of situations where a remote user is connecting in for any service. It could be you, you could require such certificates on just about any service you want. Uh, I know I know that Bacula can verify peers. Oh, yeah, nice. uh, I I'm sure that other certificate uh, other situations where the certificates are used can also be forced to validate the peer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you know it's just important too. Like uh, you know, you see this a lot too for internal things. People with the self signed certificates, and you'll see you know errors or warnings in, in web browsers. And that kind of touches on the same point too, right? It's like a part of how this all thing works besides just the, you know, this establishing of uh, a symmetric key that is then used to actually encrypt the communications is that we have this root of trust system with certificate issuers who then, you know, depending on the, the type of certificate and level, et cetera, you know, do work and take steps to verify that you're not just sending your things to some, you know, something that says they're facebook.com. No, this certificate was issued to people who do actually own that domain and may include, you know, verification of the people behind it, the people who are trying to register, you know, depending on what the company does. But that's a large part and an important part of how this whole encrypted ecosystem actually comes together and works day to day. So thank you, at uh, Blattymoo, for, for bringing that up. Definitely something we should talk about uh, more and maybe something we can go into a deep dive in on in the future. Yep. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, so that does it for the feedback on today's show. But if you'd like to contribute, you have thoughts on what we just said or anything else we've said in the show or just something you would like to see covered, let us know. Head on over to techsnap.reddit.com. There you'll find the subreddit or jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There's the contact page. There's a little drop down. Select TechSnap send us a letter and you can find us both on twitter so there's tons of ways to contact us we look forward to hearing from you real soon now it's time for the final segment in the show that's right it's the roundup we didn't have full amount of time for these stories but they're definitely interesting we'd like to highlight them and it's homework for both you and us first up at the observation deck uh, from mr brian cantrell the sudden death and eternal life of Solaris. What he's getting at by that is that uh, Oracle, I think it was last week or the week before, mm -hmm. uh, fired a lot of people associated with uh, the Solaris project. Um, they, they had acquired this through Sun, 
and much like the way they've acquired MySQL and what else? ZFS? Was was MySQL separate from Sun? Yes, it was, wasn't it? It was totally separate. But through Sun, they acquired um, Solaris and ZFS. Yes. Both great products. Absolutely. Wonderful pieces of technology. And by eternal life, he means basically Solaris was open sourced. Uh, Was the work carried on as alumnos? Alumna? Yeah. Alumnos. Yeah. So basically, it's still going. Um, But people used used to absolutely love Solaris when it was around. I'm sure they still do. That's that's not what I'm getting at. But yeah, it, it seems a shame that yet another great operating system has just been goodbye. But because it's open source, if people want, they can continue on. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good things here to be said. Um Brian's definitely close to it having having worked at Sun and currently working at Joyent who uses a, a Lumos fork called SmartOS. Uh, to, mm-hmm. to run their cloud, so you know there's a lot of good history. Sun certainly had a lot of very talented engineers, great thinkers in the in the operating system world. And operating system was something you know they took seriously, and there was a lot of great development that happened there. So it's it's certainly a sad day to see to see the end of Solaris. It's great to know Alumos is carrying on. Um, maybe now mm-hmm. that there's less confusion about you know the the nature of uh, quote unquote real Solaris, uh, maybe that will spur for more open source development. We can only hope. Yes. Okay, if you're interested, there's plenty more, a lot of good write-ups about that story, so head on over to uh, Brian's page, check that out. We must move on to the Boeing 787 and its in-flight entertainment system. A little bit of security fun here. Yeah, a lot of people have been trying to hack into the in-flight entertainment system, which they use here as IFE. Um, And this person was on the 787 Dreamliner, which is a wonderful airplane. I've never been on one, but they're wonderful. Uh, Alan's flown a lot on them. He he likes them. uh, Is that the one with the higher oxygen content? Um, I'm not sure, but I would believe it. It It is very modern. But by a higher oxygen, they pressurize it to a lower altitude than most aircraft are pressurized to. So basically, he started poking around and found a lot of uh, um, ports open. We're not going to go into this in detail. I'll just summarize what he had down here. He did a port scan on the system control unit to to see what was running. So ports 80 and 443 were running with Nginx 1.10 with a Digicert SSL cert. Digicert is a new name for the. Uh, we we talked about it on the last show, the one that Chrome, Google oh, Chrome semantic. is. Yes, thank you. Digicert is a new name for the semantics operation, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think so. Or the people so, taking over for, for it anyway. Yeah. He saw something running on port 5710, and ports 58,000 and 58,001 were running light HTTP. Um, it's interesting that I imagine the, the, the Nginx was running the uh, web portal that you connect to, and I bet you port 5800 was the streaming device. And the operating system they were running was uh, Linux 3.2 to 4.6. So 3.2 to 4.6? That's, How? A lo- that's a big range. Yeah, so it was something in there. But Previous IFEs were using Linux versions from 2002, which is 15 years old. Yeah, ages in software world, especially for a fast-moving kernel like Linux. 
yeah. So this is pretty cool. And one of his final thoughts is that I think the browser-based approach to IFE is a much better way of giving people something to do during flights because just about everyone has a smartphone or laptop these days. And those in-seat systems with those horrible captive touch displays that freeze at any given moment are better off being a relic of the past. Uh, yeah, you, you should be able to do streaming to four or 500 people stuck in a plane. Can't be that much Wi-Fi yeah, traffic. That definitely seems like a, you know, especially with, with in, in caching and other things, that, that seems like a solvable problem. Because you're not viewing it at 4K, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. At least I certainly mm -hmm. don't need to be. Yeah. Well, I've been downloading a lot of Perry Mason today. <laughs> that's awesome. So you'll have some uh, you'll have some good entertainment for your for your flight. That's my goal. Look at you planning ahead. I'm impressed. Now, um, yeah, it, it's interesting to see people hacking into these to see what things are there and by hacking in i mean inspecting he's not actually right. in, intruded into anything there's no malicious intent he's not damaging anything nope. it's just uh, nope. scanning the world around you he actually did find uh, there was something called inflight.js which basically uh provided lat latitude longitude times stuff like that it was, oh, yeah. that was very interesting. interesting and i guess he figured that was in um preparation for uh, displaying something on your device. Yeah, like so those old that, pages you could see, cool. like where you where you are in the flight trip and yep. how fast you're moving, that kind of thing. That would make sense. Yep, yep, those were cool. Yeah, definitely. I agree, though. I think it is like you know, going to a web-based platform uh, should make it a lot easier. You won't need custom devices. You can just have consumers bring their own. They already are, uh, and it should make it a lot easier to support a you know a variety of operating systems as well. Yeah. And uh, don't force me to install an app. Just yeah, no, do, it, just do it over. Yeah, no apps. No special apps. Ugh, yikes. Okay, well then that's just too gross now to think about. So I'm moving on. Over to Lenovo wasn't paying attention. 750,000 laptops had spyware. Yikes. Yes, yes. It starts off. If you have a three-year-old Lenovo laptop at home, it may be secretly collecting, quote, visual data, unquote, on your web browsing habits and using it for advertising purposes. The FTC announced Tuesday that it had settled with the Beijing-based electronics company over three violations that show how the agency is continuing to clamp down on companies that invade customer privacy. Two questions here. When did Lenovo get sold from IBM to the Beijing company? Is it more than three years ago? I think it is. You know, that's a good question. I'm not actually sure. Because uh, I, I'm, I'm sure it is because people have been, ta been lamenting the, uh, the sale for quite some time. And I'm sure it's less than that. But Lenovo laptops used to be highly regarded because they... They tended to implement devices in hardware rather than forcing a lot of stuff onto the firmware, which made it very difficult for open source projects to use the hardware, which, which meant that Lenovo was very good at running various um, open source software systems because your sound driver worked, your pause worked, your sleep worked, all of that just worked. 
Yeah, that's really nice. And I mean, we all hate the problem of, uh, you know, a bunch of bloated special drivers that have to run on your system just to get your, you know, what should be a stock laptop to work. Yep. So, yeah, their punishment, their punishment is paying out 3.5 million to the 32 states. So let's call that $100,000 each. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that's not very much. Mm. Well, it varies too because uh, the lead leading state in the case is Connecticut, and they're getting two hundred eighty six thousand. So, it's like any class action suit: the lawyers win, and and the individual complainants don't get much. Yes, exactly. Well, hopefully, hopefully this will at least create some incentive for Lenovo to uh, shape up their act. But based yes. on what we've seen the past couple of years, I'm not holding out a lot of hopes. No, no, there isn't. All right. So speaking of uh, hopes that have been been dashed, the U.S. has now moved to ban Kaspersky software in federal agencies amid concerns of Russian espionage. Yes, we heard rumors about this before. We mentioned it on a show maybe three or four shows ago, but not not the ban. The suspicion is what we mentioned a while right. ago. The U.S. government on Wednesday moved to ban the use of a Russian brand of security software by federal federal agencies amid concerns the company has ties to state-sponsored cyber espionage activities. So basically, it's a binding directive. They have no choice. They, they, all the federal civilian agencies have to identify Kaspersky Lab software on their networks, and after 90 days, unless otherwise directed, they must remove the software on the grounds that the company has connections to the Russian government, and its software poses a security risk. They are concerned about the ties between Kaspersky officials and Russian intelligence and other government agencies, and requirements under Russian law that allow Russian intelligence agencies to request or compel assistance from Kaspersky and to intercept communications transiting Russian networks. Yeah, you don't want to be sending anything to Kaspersky no, right now. Definitely not. Interesting. Yeah, well, I suppose it, I suppose it shouldn't be that surprising, but it's definitely a big move and... Uh, you know, I wonder if this will spur further discussions, right? It's always it's always troublesome when like a when a big company's bottom line gets hurt because of uh, you know government actions. So I, I can imagine how that would play out here, what the back channels in Russia look like, and how just how you know how much government influence Kaspersky uh, shareholders have. I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting piece of this whole story. Yeah, I I, I hope it. I hope there is actually solid evidence behind it and it's not a political ploy. I hope so as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, not that I hope that they're actually involved, but I hope that the the move is... That there's, yeah. there's reasonable suspicions yeah. or evidence. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so moving on from that little, uh, that little piece of drama over to our friend, Mr. Krebs. Now, now I know everyone is sick of hearing about Equifax, but I will be brief on this thing. This is not related to the Equifax U.S. disclosure. This is related to Argentina. And I'll just read two paragraphs, and then that'll be the end of it. Earlier today, this author was contacted by Alex Holden, founder of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of Milwaukee, Wisconsin-based Hold Security, LLC. Holden's team of nearly 30 employees includes 
includes two native Argentinians who spent some time examining Equifax's South American operations online after the company disclosed the breach involving its business units in North America. It took almost no time for them to discover that an online portal designed to let Equifax employees in Argentina manage credit report disputes from consumers in that country was wide open, protected by perhaps the most easy-to-guess password combination ever, admin slash admin. No, really? Oh, man. Yes. So, my extrapolation... If this is what was going on in Argentina, what was going on in the U.S.? Yeah, right. And yeah, what does it so, say about their security practices in general? Yeah, well, we read in the last show we covered a post. Uh, Equifax was blaming open source software. They were bl- blaming Apache Struts. Well, this example shows it's not open source software that's at fault. Yeah, exactly. Right. Turns out uh, your security culture needs some work. Uh, Yikes. Well, yeah, that's a little interesting bit of tidbit and probably colors the whole story. Uh, Definitely not surprising, but also very disappointing. Yep, this is is terrible. Okay, so moving on to more terribleness. Yes. A Windows Zero Day is being exploited to install creepy FinSpy malware yet again. I've not heard of FinSpy before. Maybe I've heard of, heard of it under another name, but the word the, the, the name itself is not familiar. Um, on Tuesday, Microsoft released uh, Microsoft patched a previously unknown vulnerability that researchers say was actively exploited by an undisclosed nation to install surveillance malware on one or more vulnerable computers. So this is a nation state doing this. This is someone who's studied it and said, oh, there's a problem here. So instead of responsible disclosure, what have they done? They've exploited it. The exploit, according to a blog post posted Tuesday by security firm FireEye, was embedded in a Microsoft Word document. Once opened, the document exploited a zero-day vulnerability in Microsoft's .NET framework. The exploit caused the targeted computer to install FinSpy, sometimes Fin spy, so different camel case, a family of sur- of surveillance software that that its controversial developer, UK-based Gamma Group, sells to governments throughout the world. So here's a company that's selling spyware to governments. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like pretty good business, though. Actually, in the world we live in today. Yep. Hard to fault them for that. Yep. Microsoft officials said they believe the hackers who carried out the attack are members of the Neo Dynamon Dominium 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 group, which has previous Neo Dynamon has used similar zero zero day exploits with spear phishing attachments that install Fin Fisher spyware. Microsoft has more details about the group here and here. So it's pretty nasty. Don't click on strange attachments. No, just don't do it. And do read the last line in this article. This .NET mm-hmm. flaw is one of more than 80 vulnerabilities Microsoft fixed during this month's Patch Tuesday. 80. 80 wow. vulnerabilities. Yeah, that's important to get that stuff patched regularly. 
Don't listen to that bad article we had talked about on a previous show. Just do your patches. Yes, patch and patch often. Uh, all right, well, that just about wraps up our show, but we got one last little piece of roundup today. Yep. And that's over on the Twitterverse. Yes. Uh, wait, I can just make PDFs with whatever I want, and it shows up on the FCC site? Well, yes, sort of. Uh, there's a way of submitting something, and it just shows up on their website, and that's all there is to it. This this came out, oh, when was this? Almost at the end of uh, August, and I remember reading about it. Basically, it's part of the submission process. You can see what others have submitted. Um, not everything that they submit, but you can. Um, now, part of the problem with this is that uh, it's all on the same domain, whereas other providers such as Google and Facebook have purchased separate domains entirely to host user-provided content. Uh, Imager.net or .org was created for Reddit, I think. Yeah. And there's, there's other examples of what Google and Facebook have. Now, I don't really know what the problem was, but it would be easy for you to upload a PDF and then send it, send the link to someone and the PDF had malicious content. Oh, and yeah. because it's on an FCC.gov site, you say, Oh, this, this must fine. be legit. Yeah. 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 Where it, whereas if it was on FCC user documents or something like that. Yeah. You could have a subdomain that made it very clear that these were coming from, you know, these were user uploaded files. These were not hosted by mm-hmm. us. Mm hmm. And that's why they don't have user users.fcc.gov because that's still under fcc.gov. Put it put it under a separate demand, yeah. domain. That makes it clear that it's that it's wholly separate. Yeah. And the FCC did issue an apology. Okay, good. Excellent. So hopefully this will get this will get shaped up, uh, cleared out. It's nice to see this, you know, being talked about and a quick turnaround too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But something to keep in mind for everyone out there, uh, especially, you know, whenever you're accepting, especially if you are a prominent website, anytime you're accepting user input, you just got to be very careful. You have to watch out. Exactly. All right. Anything else uh, before we get out of here today, Mr. Dale? Um, I did think of something I wanted to mention, but it's gone now. Um, there's just been so much happening over the past two weeks. Yeah. Well, if it comes back to you, you write it down or send it to us as feedback. Uh, that would work just fine, too. This has been episode... Send... Oh, mm-hmm. go on. Sorry, sorry. Nope, nope. I interrupted. Sorry. Go. <laughs> uh, that's just fine. This has been episode 337 of your Tech Snap program. If you liked it, if you didn't, if you want to see more, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find our archive, the previous incarnation of this show, and all the other great shows on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. If you haven't checked any of them out, go check out, you know, maybe go try User Error, or if you want something quick, light, and very newsworthy, Linux Action News. And there's just a ton of other great content. Plus, they've got the calendar that lets you know when we're here live and when you can expect new shows to be out for you. And you can watch the live stream. Plus, our contact page, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. That is one of the best ways you can get in contact with us. We'll talk about it here on the show. You can also go to techsnap.reddit.com or we're both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. He is at techsnap underscore Dan. Thank you very much for joining us for today's TechSnap program. We'll see you next week. Thank you.